hey, you know, we didn't ask the Iversons, thank you for reading, guys. We didn't ask them to read chapter 10. You know, chapter 10 is the genealogies of the nations, the descendants of Shem and Ham and Japheth. And, you know, when you read over that, it, it kind of reads like a hit list for Paul's pest control, you know. And so, so you'll notice in your booklet, we're supposed to be on chapter 10 today. But as pastors, we were talking about this together. It just really seemed that chapter 10 and, and these nine verses from chapter 11 sort of go together. And, and here's kind of how they fit. You know, Moses was not always interested in, in putting things in a specific chronological order. He, he organizes material thematically. So we see this, don't we, in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 gives us an overview of creation. Genesis 2 sort of zero in, zero, zeroes in on the creation of Adam and Eve. And so it's kind of like the prequel to, to what's happened in Genesis 1. Genesis 10 and 11 function the same way. Genesis 10 gives us an overview of how it came to be that all the peoples of the earth had different, um, they were part of ethnic groups with different languages dispersed over the whole land. But chapter 11 tells us how it happened. Chapter 11 is sort of the, how does the sausage gets, get made? And as with any sausage, this is not going to be a pretty thing as we're going to see. Remember that God had commanded Noah and his descendants, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and their families, to, once they came off the ark, to embark off the ark and to scatter over the face of the whole earth, to be fruitful and multiply. In fact, we see this as an exact sort of parallel to the command that God gave Adam and Eve, that they were to be fruitful and multiply. We're going to see it next week when we hear the same command given to Abraham. And we have to ask why. Why was it God's design that mankind not just sort of form one sort of undifferentiated tissue mass and sort of like clump together? Why was it important for God's people, for his creation to disperse over the face of the earth? Interestingly, Paul in Acts 17 in his speech on the, to the Areopagus makes this point. Now listen to closely what the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17. And he says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. In other words, Noah, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. What we find from the first pages of Scripture to the last is that God's grand design for our lives and for the history of the world is that his name and his fame be spread everywhere. What does the psalmist say? The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord just as the waters cover the sea. And one of the primary ways that God communicates a knowledge of himself, a knowledge of his glory, is through human beings. Because it's as human beings that we are uniquely of all God's creatures created in his image, which means we have amazing capacity for relationships and beauty and creativity and ingenuity and emotion and relationship and work. And his plan for us, his plan for humankind, and this is the way it's always been, that we are sort of scattering seeds of God's glory wherever we go. This is why you exist. 
This is why I exist. This is at the bottom of all existential theology that we live to spread a passion for the glory of his name. That's his plan for your life. Now, this story is what happens when man decides he has another plan. And then what God does in response to what man does. And then we're going to look at what does all of this mean for us. And so here we go. We're going to have man's MO, God's MO, our MO. That's where we're heading for these next few minutes. So man's MO, look at, look at verse 1 of chapter 11. It says that God uh, had created mankind off the ark. They had one language okay, in the same words. In other words, they all could communicate. They all spoke the same language. There was no cultural language, linguistic barriers. And, and, and we take this for, I mean, we kind of skim over that, but guys, that's a big deal, right? That's a big deal. Ever go on an international trip, that trip goes much better, right, when you have an interpreter, okay, and when you're not saying offensive things in someone else's language, okay, or getting yourself lost. But, but this universal language allowed them, interestingly, to be pretty efficient. It says they migrated from the east. They migrated in mass. Now, that's no mean feat, some of you could not even get all of your kids in your minivan this morning, okay? And some are still at home wandering around aimlessly, right, with their cinnamon toast crunch. This is a, this is a big deal to get anywhere, anytime, any place with a group of people. But they were able to do it. How? Because of their language. They were also able to excel technically. See, they were able to, to build cities and towers. They were able to communicate together. They were all on the same page, you know, the closest thing, obviously, we have culturally is technology and computers, which can transcend culture and language and boundaries. And let's be honest, there are many, many blessings to this. We, we fully recognize that, right? Progress, development, innovation. It makes life exceedingly easy when you can just speak into your smartphone and it will translate it for you. It allows the world to be small. It allows us to, to make connections like no one in the history of the world ever has. But, but, it also, technology, and this common language, it can also facilitate and perpetuate an illusion. So look, look at the text, and it tells us what happened here. Verses 3 and 4 has humanity coming together. They're all on the same page. They're all part of team human whatever, and they say, come, let us build. Come, let us make. Now, where does that language come from? Where does that, that sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Think back to Genesis 1 and 2. It was God who by divine imperative fiat, what did he say? Come, let us make man. God created all things. He spoke it into existence. And this is Moses' way of communicating to us that roles have now been reversed. You see, their progress, their ability to communicate and to pull together and, and live out many of the God-given things of being made in his image, it also unwittingly gave them a sense of power and of control, of autonomy, of independence. And all of this, of course, was an illusion now, if you go back to Genesis 10 for just a second, 
in verses 8 through 12, it tells us who's in sort of in front of the parade of humanity leading the charge. And believe it or not, here we have again the descendants of Ham, specifically Nimrod, who's a mighty man. Now, the word Nimrod literally means in the Hebrew, we shall rebel. And the word warrior in the Hebrew also means tyrant. And so under Nimrod's leadership, humanity decided that we are going to put stakes down right here. We know God said scatter. We know God said do this and this and this. But look at what we can do. We're bigger than that. We can come together. We can build a tower. We can accomplish great things. And verse 4 tells us what was animating them, what was driving them. Look there at verse 4. It says, they were saying to themselves, let us make a name for ourselves. And any time the Bible speaks about making a name, it's talking about fame. It's talking about notoriety. It's talking about reputation. It's talking about prosperity. It's, it's talking about making one great. And we know from, and what we've seen in this study of Genesis up to this point, that it's very clear God wanted man to multiply to spread across the face of the earth. Why? To make his name great. To make a name for himself. But see, they had their own priorities. And it reminds us that in the battle of every person's heart here, every person in the history of the world, there's a battle of two kingdoms, isn't there? There's the kingdom of self, and then there's the kingdom of God. And if you want to get to the bottom, bottom of any conflict, any relational difficulty, whether it's marital or personal or any conflict among nations or empires or countries or city states or what have you, at the bottom of all of it, someone invariably is saying, mine, that belongs to me. I want what you have. You want what I have. Let's duke it out. Now, now you may say, well, Pastor Paul, that's an oversimplification. I don't think so. Paul Tripp says every battle is a battle of two conflicting kingdoms. And understand something. We, this is how we're hardwired. We are hardwired to build. That's part of who we are in God's image. We are, hot, we are hardwired to build something. We are hardwired to build a kingdom. The question is, who or what are we building? See, this morning you may say, well, I, I'm not building. You know, every one of us in here is building something, right? Every one of us has sort of put our chips in the middle of the table, our eggs in a basket, so to speak, on something that we are building. Maybe we're building our name our reputation, our job, our career, our bank account, our assets, our accomplishments, our hobbies, our children, our families. All of us are invested in something. And to understand something, all of those things in and of themselves are good gifts of God. Those things aren't the problem. The problem is right here. Because we want to take a good thing and we want to make it a God thing. And when we do that, it becomes a bad thing. The question is, who or what are we building? That's man's MO. You can't get away from that. 
When you walk away from here today, you're going to be building something. You're going to be investing something. You're going to be you're going to treasuring something, valuing something. And what we're going to see here under the second point is that this is now God's response to their folly, to their deception. Now, when you look at God's MO, and you were, put yourself in the, the shoes of the Israelites who are reading this passage. Remember, they are traveling in the wilderness. They are heading towards the promised land. And it was there in the promised land, what were they supposed to do? Worship God. They were going to the promised land to make his name great. But obviously, they had a ton of fears as they were going, as you can imagine. And who, what awaits us? And they had just left the Egyptian empire, and they were going into the teeth of other empires. And there was all sorts of, of questions. And you can imagine their fear, their anxiety about being called to be a part of the building of the kingdom of God. Well, this whole passage reads like a spoof. It's a satire. It's a comedy. We don't get it because we're thousands of years removed from this. But you can almost hear, if you listen, okay, don't email me about that. But if you listen, Moses snickering in the background. First of all, Moses starts to talk about brick and mortar. And we're saying, what does this have to do with, why this insignificant detail? What did Moses do and the people of Israel do back in Egypt? They made bricks. See, remember, remember that whole story about, um, you know, Pharaoh said, you got to make some more bricks. We're not going to give you the straw. Do the straw yourself. That, that's what they did. They, they built things. And if anyone knew what it took to build something, it was Moses and the Israelites. And as they are sitting here reading this passage, they would have immediately started to snicker to themselves because they knew you can't make anything enduring out of bricks and mortar. See, see, mortar, the, the word of the King James Version, for the two of you who are still using that, okay, literally means slime. They were making, they were making, they were making a city out of rocks and slime. And, and all of them would have been laughing because they know the way you build something permanent is with stone, right? And they had been part of building those pyramids, which even some of them endure to this day. Go to the ruins of the old city in Jerusalem. You're going to see what they built with stone. Jesus was a carpenter, which really meant, what was he? He was actually a mason. And so this idea that, that they had stopped in the middle of this plane and they were literally trying to build something enduring, something lasting, something eternal, this great monument out of figuratively tinker toys, okay, would, have, would have had special meaning to the people of Israel. Consider for a second, if you go back to chapter 10, and I've never really seen this before, I was just studying it this week, but Nimrod, who's not the name of the guy in your chemistry class, but you get where I'm going, Nimrod, he actually helped found two, two of the axis of the evil empire of the time, Babylon and Assyria. In fact, Babel provides the roots for Babylon. And who were these two people? They were the arch enemies, Right? Of Israel. They were the arch enemies, and they would have read this genealogy, they would have read this story, and they would have realized something. You see, for these two empires, this is what Bruce Waltke, Old Testament scholar, says about this Babylon was in Israel's world what Rome was to the Middle Ages. It represented the spiritual and political antithesis to Jerusalem. It eventually terminated Judah as an autonomous nation. 
Moses is wanting to emphasize something to them. How ridiculous all this kingdom building really is. See, they thought they were building something invincible. They thought they were building a name for themselves. They thought they were reaching up into heavens. But look at verse 5. It's a play on words. It says that God came down from heaven. Do, do you get the sense of what's happening there? They're building a tower into heaven. And, and there's a sense of God saying, what's happening down there? You know, like, I want to play with my little toddler and see what he's doing with his Legos, right? I'm going to get down on my knees and I'm going to look and I'm going to be like, oh, that's what you're making. Oh, that's precious, right? That, that, is, so, that is so cute. Reminds me that back in the 70s, a big thing was making model airplanes and model tanks and all those things. And we would get those pieces and we would paint the pieces and glue them and meticulously work on them. And I remember I had this aircraft carrier. It was awesome. I love that aircraft carrier, the little, little planes that folded up their wings and I was working on something one time and model and left it there and I came, I went to use the bathroom or something and came back and realized like somebody in the house had crushed it, right, with their foot, like my sister, of course. And it's like, I didn't know I crushed your model. I was just walking across the floor. You know, it's like how fragile that is, right? How fragile, how small, how unthreatening. God is saying, Israelites, that's what the kingdom of the worlds are to you. That's what the kingdoms of the world are to me. Babylon, Assyria, Egypt. Let me ask you a question. Because most of us aren't living in abject fear of a, of a nation state this morning, right? But there's some other Babylons in your life that are just as real. There's the, and you know what the Babylon is in your life. It's the thing that you think about when you're going to bed at night. It's the first thing that's on your heart when you wake up in the morning. It's the thing that consumes your spare time and your mental energy. The things that just seem incredibly insurmountable. It seems like a kingdom, right, has been erected against you and your life. In verse 6, we need to unpack this, is an, an amazingly encouraging verse. This is God's evaluation of that. He says, nothing will be impossible. Now, when he says that, he's talking about man coming together and why he has to scatter them. What, he, he's not speaking as if man is a rival, like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, you know, something bad is going to happen. That's not, that's not what he's speaking about here. What Moses means is that God is saying, if I leave man to his own devices, He's going to destroy himself. He's going to worship himself. He's going to spend his lifetime building up his own kingdom. And it's going to blow away like the wind. And so what we see here, as God intersperses himself to scatter the nations, to give them other languages, to confuse their talk, is actually a part of his grace. See, sometimes... God brings things into our life that topple our little man-made kingdoms in order to show us that we can put no hope in them, to show us that they are temporary, they are a mist, they are a vapor. It's, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around sometimes because it feels so personal that God somehow is not for us, that God is, is somehow 
allied against us. But Genesis 11 tells us it's exactly the opposite. When God comes down and he scatters mankind, it is for mankind's own good because man is doing something that will ultimately destroy him. Where in your life do you need a reframe of God's work as not against you, but as a part of his grace? You know, interesting the way that this, this, little, this little tidbit ends. Now, and I love the way that this, is, that this is stated by Moses. It says, so, this is verse 8, The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. What does that mean? What does that mean in, in contemporary terms? They abandoned their building project. They were halfway through, or a third of the way through, and they left it for it to ever be a ruin. And I was reading in the paper um, a couple weeks ago about the project that's going on in downtown Tallahassee, the $90 million project, Washington Square. And I don't know what the status of that is now, but I know that for, it's been in the books for a long time. It's going to bring tons of jobs and create a nightlife in downtown Tallahassee and um, all these sorts of things. And you could drive by downtown and see the foundations being laid. And you could see the bricks going up and the steel and the mortar but as of a couple of weeks ago, you could drive by, and what was happening there? Nothing. Nothing. Construction had ground to a halt. Of course, it's Tallahassee, so there's some lawsuit, and somebody's doing this, and somebody's doing that, and they can't figure out who gets paid and who doesn't get paid. But it's a perfect picture of where every man-centered kingdom goes. Psalm 2 says it this way. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let's make a name for ourselves. Verse four, he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now let me tell you where I want us to go on this last point. Because it would be very easy for us as Christians to rage a little bit against the culture, to rage against all the empires that have erected themselves against us. They're, they're, they're taking away our country. They're taking away our freedoms. They're taking away this. They're taking away that. But, you know, Paul has a, a, a warning for us in 1 Corinthians 5 when he's talking to the church. There, He says, you know what? The world is pretty wicked. It's pretty evil. But don't you worry about the world. I got that. Okay. He said, you worry about the household of faith. You worry about yourselves. You worry about your own hearts. Remember, we have to remember God's discipline always begins where? In the household of faith. And so what does God want us to do with this passage? That's what we're going to spend our last few minutes on, our MO. Guys, it's my contention that the spirit of Babel is oftentimes alive and well in the very church of God. You see, as Christians, and, and this is it's so easy to slide into, because the longer we're a Christian, the, the easier it is to forget what it's like not to be a Christian, right? And so when we've been a Christian a long time, it's really easy to put spirituality in terms of mine. Mine. That's my walk with Christ. That's my community group. That's my money, that's, that, that's, that's my time, that's my family, that's, in other words, 
I've got mine and I'm good, right? You know, a lot of you who've been walking with the Lord for decades, let's be honest, some of you are just flat out tired, right? You're like, I've raised my kids. I just, come on, Pastor Paul, I just, I want to sit here. I want to absorb. I want to marinate. I want to receive. I'm just, this is the time in my life where I'm just sort of tapping out. And oftentimes what happens over the lifespan of a church, churches become insular. They consolidate. They turn inward. They, they, they cease being on mission. They cease being outward. And you know what? It's always been a propensity that the church of Christ has always had to face. From, from, from A.D., zero to today, it's always been a propensity that, that Christ's church said to fight against. You know, we oftentimes think of the New Testament church as this pristine, noetic, they were on mission all the time. But remember something in Acts 8, that 5,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost. And this was such an awesome thing that the Christians there in Jerusalem didn't want to leave. Now, they were having a great time. They were worshiping and learning and teaching But they had forgot something. Even the apostles had forgot something, which was what? Jesus said, go therefore into all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them, incorporate them into the body of Christ. And Acts 8 tells us what God does. Now, isn't this interesting when we're talking about this idea of scattering the nations? Exact same terminology. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Listen, and they were all what? Scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. You see, oftentimes, God is pushing, pushing, pushing his church to be a little uncomfortable, to think beyond themselves in order to carry the mission forward. Guys, so easy, I think, in a church like Four Oaks, which I love, if I was not the pastor here in clear conscience, I can say this would be the church I would go to. I love this church. It's so easy to look at all the blessings of Christ and say, mine. Well, I've got my friends. I've got my group. I've got my people. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm doing that. Our world becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And we forget, you know what? There is a whole city, a whole, whole neighborhoods, whole office buildings, whole mission fields that don't get to experience what you and I get to experience, who are kingdom building all for naught. And what they need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when that happens, guys, when God starts messing with the church, that's part of his grace. That's part of his grace. You know, for those of you who weren't around, we moved here 10 years ago into this building with a, with, as one congregation with a clear mission. We said, God, we don't want to park it up here in Northeast Killarn. We don't want to simply be another suburban street on the corner serving its own needs. We want to be a church on mission. And so by God's grace over the last six years, we've been able to launch two congregations from this congregation right here. And we have to ask What does mission look like for you and me right here, right now? What are we to do? And I think God is making it 
super clear that this is a season for us at Killarne where he wants us to run after mission within the context of our own spheres. You know, oftentimes we talk about community outreach, and that's a good thing. But guys, you're already in the community. You're working, you're teaching, you're driving around, you're in school, you're, you're, you're invested in relationships in your neighborhood, your t-ball teams, your sports teams. We're already in the community. And we have to be reminded, what does it mean for us to be on mission? Now, I want to I do something that, that here in our last little bit of time, and a friend of mine at a, another church did this, and I asked his permission if we could steal it. He said, go for it, so we're going to steal it. But I want to remind us this morning who we really are, that, that we're not just one undifferentiated mass of Christians here huddling it out in Kalarn, but in actuality, God has called us to scatter, scatter all into our own spheres. And so I'm going to recognize a few groups of people this morning. And based upon the feedback I got in first service, I expanded my number of groups, okay? And so we're going to try to capture everybody that we can. So if you, this morning, if you're a teacher, an educator, an administrator, or a student, I want you to stand up. Can you do that? Teacher, educator, administrator, student. Let me tell you something. You guys are on the absolute front lines. You, you are where, keep standing, you are on mission in a way you may not even be fully aware of. God has strategically placed you, positioned you. You are not simply there to learn or to teach, although you, it's not less than that. But you are there to be a salt and light witness. And so, Four Oaks, pray for these people. Pray that God will give them a heart and an eye to the mission as they go forward. You may be seated. If you're a part of the medical community this morning, a doctor, a nurse, a technician, dentistry, that's what somebody told me in the second first service, okay, whatever. If you're in the medical field in any way, sales, what have you, would you stand up? If you're in the medical industry at all, Here's a charge that I give you. You who are in the medical field get to attend to the fine china of people's lives in a way that few others do. People will tell their medical professionals things they wouldn't dream of telling anybody else. You deal in matters literally of life and death. Remember when you are in that place at that time that God has set you apart to be a witness for eternal things. Folks, pray, pray, pray for our medical professionals. You may be seated. You might be someone who works in an office. So maybe, you're, you're, maybe it's law or maybe it's the state government or something like that. If that, if that pertains to you, if you kind of work in an office, you're a consultant, you're a state worker, law, just stand up for a second. I think one of the ways that God has uniquely positioned you who are standing is that people get to see your walk with Jesus Christ up close. They see you every day. They see your ethics. They see your truth-telling. They see your, your honesty or lack thereof. They get a living, breathing picture of the gospel. I think that's completely unique almost to any of us 
because you work day in, day out, oftentimes with the same people over and over. Don't disdain those rhythms. Workers, just see them as a grace from God to live out your walk with Jesus Christ on mission. You may be seated. Just a couple more. If you're someone who, who is at home this season, maybe as a stay-at-home mom or dad, or uh, maybe you're just not working at this particular time in your life, maybe you're raising kids, maybe you're homeschooling, maybe you're, you're supporting your spouse as they're working, you have grandkids, whatever the case may be, if that pertains to you, would you stand up? Would you stand up? See, I noticed that some of you who are, who are standing may very well think, you know, this is, I, I'm, what I'm doing here is not significant. What I'm doing here is not important. Au contraire. <laughs> You're investing in the next generation. You are supporting grandchildren. You are investing in lives. I'm looking at some of you who are, who are retirees. You're saying, you know, I, and let me say to those who are, who are retired, who are here, thank you, thank you, thank you for not tapping out. Thank you for seeing your whole life as a mission field, for not squandering and in, in dilly-dallying around in this twilight season of your life when God has called you to be on mission. Thank you, thank you. And folks, pray for all of these folks who are in their homes. You may be seated. If you work with your hands, you're a builder, contractor, you climb trees. We had one of those in the first service. If you climb trees, if you're in the food industry, if you like do stuff with your hands that make all the rest of us jealous that we can't do that, would you stand up if you work with your hands? I think one of the unique ministries that you men and women have is that when we think about what it means to be a servant of Christ, it literally means people who wait on tables. And God says that is a glorious calling. When we work with our hands, when, 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 when we, we have a unique ability to serve other people in a, in a day and age where we increasingly can't do anything for ourselves, right? What an amazing opportunity to say, but this is why I choose to do this. I'm not just serving you, but I'm serving Jesus Christ. I'm compelled by the love of Christ. Thank you, thank you to all of you. You may be seated. Pray for them. Lastly, if you're in law enforcement, I I was about to say if you're carrying a gun right now, but I didn't do that, okay? (laughs) I know that would freak some of you out. If you're in law enforcement, stand up. Thank you. Thank you, men, for what you do and for protecting us. What you do is a witness to our community by enforcing the justice and righteousness of our laws. May other people see the righteousness and judgment of God and turn to Christ. But thank you, thank you. Pray for our law enforcement officers. They are on mission too. Thank you. You may be seated. Guys, if, if I didn't capture anyone in all those groups, guess what? You're on mission as well. So we're praying for you. <laughs> Last thing I'll say, what's our common language together as we're on mission? Of course, the common language is the gospel. And I want you to listen to this. Zephaniah 3.9 forecasts this prophecy. And here's what he says. He says, for at that time, I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech. In other words, one speech. 
that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. God says, I'm in the business of undoing what happened at Babel. See, Babel literally means gateway to heaven. But there's a play on words where God changed it to say, but now there is not Babel, there's Babel. See, there's confusion. But God says, I'm in the midst of making all that right. How does he do that? Acts 2 tells us, Now this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak, what, in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Folks, that time, that season is today. God has given us a universal language and a universal call is to take the gospel and to be on mission. What are you building? We're all building something. But isn't it your heart's desire to build something that would endure, something that lasts, something that's eternal? God invites you and I into that place today. Let's pray.